Our scripture for this morning is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read these words uh, here, now the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Tyria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Babylon, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, crooked paths shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways. In all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we do that. Father, we open your word to have us speak to us because we believe that it is living and active, sharper than the sword, cutting past our, our assumptions, excuses, defenses, to make us more like Jesus. So do that, I pray. It was around 13 uh, years ago, I visited the uh, Grand Canyon for the first time. And looking at the canyon, it did not even feel like a real place. It's like looking at it, it was like, this feels like I'm staring at a, like a weird museum experience of a painting. This isn't real. Like, it does not look real. And so there's a photo there. So my friend Toby took that photo 13 years ago when we were there. And two of my friends and me, we were planning to hike the Grand Canyon. To go all the way down to the bottom, and the hike all the way back up to the top. And standing there at the top of the canyon, just looking at this, um, I had several thoughts running through my head. Just, I'm not a climber. I am terrified of, of heights. I have no skills or gifts to speak of to, to think that anybody should consider, or anybody should think that I should even attempt this, let alone actually be someone who gets to the bottom and gets back. Out. That essentially my thought at the top of that canyon was, I am not ready. And yet, we're going to do this the next day. In Luke's Gospel, uh, the account of the life of Jesus, this person who was an earlier follower of Jesus, starts in the same place that I was at standing over that canyon. That you are not ready for God. It's just like, uh, in no way should I have assumed that I was ready to hide the canyon. None of us are the sort of people that if, if Jesus was just to walk up to us, we would even be remotely ready to hear what he was about to say. For us to actually listen to him, for, actually, for us to hear what he has to say to us. But for the next several weeks, uh, we, we, we started last week, but we're, we're in the, the Gospel of Luke, and we're in a series of rediscovering Jesus, and, and sort of the idea to fall behind the series is that, that we all bring our own assumptions, our own agendas, our own thoughts about who Jesus is, and so we end up oftentimes with our, not the real Jesus, but with our own vision of Jesus, with our own agenda of Jesus, that we've shrunk down to our own size, but we are ready for him. Which is why I think the ministry of Jesus actually doesn't start with the ministry of Jesus. It starts with the ministry of a man named John the Baptist, who really just had one message. And the message was this, that the Messiah is coming, and you are not. We are not ready for an encounter with God. And so John the Baptist was sent to get us ready. 
And so before we're ever like, ready to jump into the life of Jesus, we need the ministry of John the Baptist. And, and really two points sermon this morning, that we're not ready for God. And the first being that we're not ready for the bad news that Jesus is going to bring into the ministry. We're not ready for the bad news. And so as I mentioned, like, the, the ministry of Jesus didn't begin with Jesus being with John the Baptist. My favorite picture image of John the Baptist is the one from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, John the Baptist shows him, you know, big, bushy beard. Uh, he's eating bugs, but he's dipped them in honey. Uh, he lives in the desert. He has the beard to prove it. And just like, it looks like this is an eccentric guy, right? This is a different type of dude. And, it, and, and the essential message of John the Baptist is what he came to preach. It's from Isaiah 40. And, and here's the context of Isaiah. Here's the point of Isaiah 40. And so there's been a long period of absence of God, and the people have felt that. There's been a distance between God and the salvation coming to the people. And so Isaiah 40 is God announcing, I am going, I'm coming. And because I'm coming, like, this is, this is not just the king visiting, it's the God of the universe coming to visit. And that day, when a king would come to visit, it's sort of like, you know, when a celebrity comes, or when someone important comes, you roll out a red carpet. And you roll out a path for them that's clear, like, you're important, walk this path. And so if a king came, you wanted your road to be, to be, Fit for a king, right? So you fill in the, the potholes. It was sort of like the opposite of what Missouri does in March. It's like you fill in the potholes, you don't leave them for you to drive. But you want a level straight. That's an anti-Missouri joke. It's okay. <laughs> but you smooth the path. You prepared the path so that God could, could come. But, but according to Isaiah, there aren't just potholes we have to fill in. There aren't just bumps that have, have, have grown up over time. There are, there are entire mountains that have to be left. There are deep valleys that must be filled in. If God is going to have anything coming and actually having a real encounter with us, it's, it's almost as if between us and God, this deep canyon, and the canyon has to be filled for us to go across and know God to meet, God to be ready for God. So it's why John's message is just one thing. And it's there in, in verse 4, when we, uh, or verse 3, when we get uh, what he proclaimed, which is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's basic message, like the way you get ready for God to meet with him, you have to repent. Which is like, you know, that's, that just sounds like a dark, ominous, religious word, and it kind of is. Because what it, the whole point of John the Baptist's message, and the, this word repent, is that the kind of person that we are today is in no way capable of having a real encounter with God. It's, it's, we're not ready it's true, you can't, just like you can't go and hike the Grand Canyon and walk back out. You're not, you have to repent. You have to get yourself ready for that. And, and even though it's a dark, ominous sounding word, it's actually a pretty, it's a pretty profound concept. When you get past the sort of, like, how we think about it, it's like, you know, repent is that guy in the, the corner of the closet yelling. Like, that's what, no, no, it's, it, it is sort of that. But it's, it's, it's actually something really helpful when you push into what the Bible means when it says repent. And there's really, I'm going to just walk you through, when the Bible says repent, there are three steps. Well, it's actually a lot of steps, but only seven to three. And the first step of repentance is just to admit that you are helpless. Right? The, the distance between me and God is not a pothole I gotta work and fill in. It's a mountain that I have to level and I can't. And this seems like a very defeatist statement to say you're helpless, but actually, not just in, in a religious sense, but in a human sense, to admit you're helpless is actually oftentimes the first step to incredible change. So the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, I think, an organization that has produced incredible life change, more so than, than many other. This is, uh, I, I got on their website and read kind of 
their materials. And here's how they describe step one of the recovery process for alcoholics. Step one, uh, which is basically admit your helpless. Here's what they write about that. Here, uh, who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It's truly awful to admit that, glass in hand, we have worked our minds in a session of session for destructive drinking, that only an act of providence can remove it from us. But upon entering AA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. We perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps toward liberation and strength. Our admission of personal powerlessness finally turned out to be firm, a firm bedrock upon which a happy and purposeful lives may be built. Our admission of personal powerlessness is the bedrock to a happy life. And basically what AA did was they read John the Baptist's ministry and like, all right, that's step one for it. It was step one for Jesus, it's step one for us. And that was the first step of the Christian life, is I, I am not ready for God, and I can't make myself ready for God. I am powerless. There's a valley that must be built, a mountain that must be leveled. I am not ready for God. And of course, like, that's the exact opposite assumption most of us have when it comes to religion, when it comes to God, when it comes to our own lives, which is that like, if there's a God, of course I'm ready for him. Why wouldn't he love me? Why wouldn't he want to know me? Of course, like, there's not this big chasm between us and God. That's what you know, really angry medieval people believed about God. They, they had you know, issues they can work through. And now we work through those issues, and now we show God loves everybody, and there's no distance, and it's all against us. That will not produce lasting change. Unless your fundamental assumption as a Christian is, I cannot fill this valley. I cannot lower this mountain. And in fact, like that, that is the starting place of grace. And one of my favorite Christian authors, the Church Father Augustine, wrote this 1,600 years ago. The desire to desire the aid of grace is the beginning of grace. In other words, grace is not, the idea of grace, which is central to Christianity, is not. Uh, I need help, and this is a little extra boost for me. No, grace is, I have nothing. I need help. And that's the starting place of grace. It's the starting place of repentance. And all what that should mean for a church community, and if we've accepted the ministry of Jesus, which starts with repentance, is the church should have the same bit of solidarity and community that, that begins in AA meeting when someone stands up and says, my name is so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Like the church, what we are is, my name is Tim, and I am a helpless sinner. And that should would produce incredible solidarity, admitting that you're helpless. It would be the, the foundation on which to build a powerfully changed life. Which is why Jesus doesn't start his ministry. John the Baptist starts his ministry to say, listen, before you're even before you're gonna hear anything this next guy says, you need to hear this first. Admit you are helpless. So that's that's step one. Step two then is uh, is reject false identities. And I think one of the reasons why we struggle with the idea of sin is often we think of sin as like, well, it's that extra piece of chocolate that you had uh, in, you know, after dinner last night, or it's, uh, you know, you cut that person off in travel. You just have some bad habits, and once you work on them, then they'll give up. That's the way we think of sin, or we think of like legalistic rules. And often the way the church talks about sin is legalistic uh, little rules like don't dance uh, in church. Uh, you better take your hat off when you pray. And sinning is when you don't take your hat off. When you pray, which is a bald guy, I feel like that's that's a little bit that's not fair, right? It's like I've got to cover my head with something, and so if I'm going to leave my head on my prayer, so that's a bald joke. It's okay, you can laugh about that. But like sin is not that. Sin is actually, according to Sir Kierkegaard, it's it's building your identity on anything but God. And you actually sort of see this work out itself out in John the Baptist's ministry. And one of the primary ways we do this 
is we try to, to gain an identity through work, through our accomplishment, through our work and vocation. And so two of the primary people who come to John the Baptist are tax collectors and soldiers. And it's pretty, you know, we don't know why they, they became those, those careers or why they, they got into those jobs. But tax collectors, what's clear in that day was over time, their, their vocation led them to, to build their identity around wealth, which meant they, they abused and used other people to get more wealthy for themselves. So this is totally unrelatable, right? A government official who would use their power to get more money from other people. It's like completely, I was like, who does that? Um, but the other position uh, was a soldier, which is, uh, you know, there you could ask anyone to do anything as a soldier. You have total power over those people to say, like, I want you to carry this thing for me, you carry this thing for me. And over time, that became... That led to them being powerful, powerfully abusive people. And right, it's easy to poke fun at them, but here's the deal. All of us in our own our own working vocation, whether it's as a stay-at-home mom or as a parent, which is a vocation itself, whether it's, you know, you're a teacher, you're a lawyer, from my vocation as a pastor, we all have these grooves, these, these trails we can begin to walk that lead us into building an identity around our working vocation and lead us into particular sin. Right, so like the, the the sin of the tax collector was was wealth and abuse of others to gain wealth. The sin of the soldier was abuse of power to gain uh, power through their own work. The question for us is, how has your own work and vocation become an identity to which might that that's potentially can lead you into to sin, to abusing others, to taking advantage of others? Right, in your own work and vocation, what are ways false identity leads to sin? How is your work and vocation a unique temptation into a false identity? And I, I, I would just encourage you, like, take some time to think on that this week. Because again, sin is not like, it's not some shallow thing. It's I begin to build my entire existence around something at the center that's not God, and it leads me to act towards others in ways that is deeply harmful to them. And so I, I did that, like, this week. Like, what, are the, what are the unique sins as a pastor? But like it's just easy to start heading down this this path, and, and unfortunately for me, it's like all the examples are pretty public, and it seems like especially with evangelical Christianity, I've got a lot of them to, to pull from. I got a lot of stories to think about. So in my own in my own work as a pastor, one big trait of sin is is a false sense of self importance. A pastor start thinking, "Why well, I serve God? I'm more important than you." Like, I'm going to pray this week. I'm going to have important meetings with people. Uh, I work for, the, I work for the, the, the creator of the universe, so I don't, I don't need to explain that to you. Don't ask me that question. It's, uh, it can quickly lead to the abuse of people. Right? People share uh, vulnerabilities with me that they oftentimes I'm the first person to hear something. A sin, a doubt, a question. And you hold so much of that person when that happens. That's why pastors often use that to abuse those people, and to, to gain control of them rather than to serve them and to love them. So pastors often take that moment and exploit it for money, for attention, for others. And those stories are everywhere. When my identity begins to be in the fact that I'm in front of, I mean, listen, like this moment every week, I'm in front of people and they're all listening to me. It's like, that's, you better, I gotta check that, like, really quickly, because that can start to go to your head, right? It's like, look at all the people you're listening to me. Most of you will not have this many people listening to you all for you know for the next several months, and I have that every week. What does that do to you over time? And it's why I like why I think that canyon illustration of like you cannot just give your way back to God is not because well, it's just, you know, as a pastor, I have to think about that, I have to guard myself, I have to be careful. It's like no, no, no. There, these patterns and these patterns are so subtle, they're 
they're so easy to, to lean into. And the next thing you know, you wake up 10 years down the road and you are, you're a deeply broken person. That's why step one is the first step. You have to admit you're helpless. So then you can begin to see, oh boy, I'm constructing an identity as a mom or as a pastor or as a worker that's just leading me down a path that's so problematic, it's so troubled. It's not leading me to life. So reject false identities. And then third, the third step of repentance is actually confessing your sins to other people. You have, to, you have to say, I'm sorry. It's not just an internal thing, it's to others as well. And just to be clear, like, this isn't just a, like a religious idea that saying I'm sorry is a good thing. Uh, I was recently uh, listening to a podcast by uh, Patrick Winston, he's a well known author, a uh, business consultant. And his podcast is called At the Table. He recently had a, uh, a podcast just about the importance of leaders admitting faults. He told a story about Ford, a motor company. And the company was, it was just in terrible shape, they were shedding money. It was all. It was a complete disaster. And so the CEO would gather, you know, a few of his most important direct reports, and he'd ask for them. Okay, how's your department doing? And he always had to, to give a green report, it's great. A yellow report, it's a problem, it's okay. Or a red report, like it's on fire. And here's the thing: like it was all on fire. It was all bad. But everyone came with a green report. Everybody. It's like, oh, it's going great. And, and the CEO quickly realized, like, no one is admitting that they're not doing a good job, and this is the biggest problem. And so they had several meetings like this. And so one day. Uh, someone just stood up and said, listen, this this train wreck, red. And the CEO, instead of like, yeah, you're right, you're doing a terrible job. So instead of that, he stood up and gave the guy a standing ovation. And Lindsay only got, goes on to say, like, it changed the culture of Ford and helped them rebound from where they were because you went from a culture of no one willing to apologize or admit any fault to owning your mistakes, working on them, sharing them in confidence. And building on those things. He's just saying, I'm sorry. It's one of the most powerful things we can do. And yet, going back to step one, it's one of the things that human beings have the hardest time doing. We do not like to admit we're helpless. Probably point two, rejecting false identities. Like, okay, yeah, I can track with you. And then point three, I have to say, I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah, I was wrong. It was, you know, and, and not just saying, like, yeah, I'm sorry, but like naming the thing that you're sorry for. I think that does raise, like, why is that so, uh, such a difficult human experience? So look at someone who you can even know I've wronged. And just look at that and say, I'm sorry. Why is that so hard for us? And I think the reason why it's so hard for us is because of verses 17 and 18 in chapter 3. These are like, these two verses together do not make sense. So here, so at the end of the John the Baptist, at the end of his preaching, he starts talking about Jesus, and this is the way he describes Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So basically what he's saying is like Jesus has come, some people are going to believe in him, it's going to go well for them, some people are not going to go well for them, it's going to be like, like wheat burning up in flames, right? That's, a pretty, that's an intense verse, okay? And then listen to the next verse. So, you know, basically, Jesus is going to burn a bunch of things up. That's, that's verse 17. And then verse 18 is, and so with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. It's like, wait, the, like the light on fire verse and the good news to the people, like that, how do those two things go together? And I think in that tension is why we often don't confess. Because when I say I'm sorry, what I'm afraid is going to happen is you're just going to, you're just going to use that moment to set me on fire. If I show you vulnerability, if I come to you and say, I'm sorry, forgive me, all I'm going to hear from you is, that's right. Let me tell you about all the other things. You, you aren't doing well. You're wrong. You're, it's, and that's how most human beings act. 
And the only way to lean into repentance is to admit you're helpless, is to reject those, those false identities we've built ourselves on, and to confess our sins. And the reason that we can have confidence or know that we do that before God, and He's not just going to burn us up, is because it's not, it's not just the bad news that we struggle with when it comes to being God. Right, for many of us, it's hard to believe, like, okay, encountering God, there's a valley that has to be filled in, there's a mountain that has to be lowered, there's no way I can ever stop my own. Uh, come before God. Like, I'm helpless. He has to do something towards me. And it's really, like, how do I even begin to confess sins? Like, a lot of us, that's a hard message for you. To admit you're a sinner and you're helpless and you confess your sins, like, you're just like, I'm not doing that. And that's hard. And it's, listen, if you're not ready to do that, you're not ready to meet Jesus. You're not ready to have an encounter with Jesus until you're in a place where you're helpless, you reject false identities, and you confess your sins. You're just not ready for him. But even when you do all those things, we're still not ready. It's not just that we're not ready for the good news. We're also not ready. Or not ready for the bad news. We're also not ready for the good news. Now, all of the John the Baptist ministry it leads up to, to Jesus, to his baptism. And here's how we have Jesus' baptism described to us uh, in verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the, ba- the people were baptized, John's ministry is winding down. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So the high point of John Baptist ministry is Jesus getting baptized, and God the Father speaking over Jesus. You are my son, with whom I am well pleased. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, what we're going to find is the core identity of Jesus is that he is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. So why is that important? And when I ask that question, I think about, uh, there was, uh, when I was growing up in high school, there was a kid who was the kid of a really wealthy family. It was a well-known family in town. They had lots of money, and like the way he carried himself, you knew that. Uh, he drove from a Lexus to high school. It was not like his Lexus. But, like, most high school students did not drive great Lexus. Uh, it's either Chevy Cavalier, it was four doors, and frankly, it looked like a girl should drive it. That was my car uh, going to high school. Uh, you know, you didn't drive any, the way he dressed, the way he kind of like had lots of cash at all times. Like, you just knew this guy was the son of someone really important, right? Look at me. That's not how Jesus carried his sonship, right? It wasn't looking, I'm the son of God, guys. This is pretty great. Like, I, you know, have access to unlimited uh, presence of God. I can. Uh, do anything I want to. So you did, that is not how Jesus carried his sonship. Instead, how Jesus carried his sonship was not uh, a, a get away from me type. They were like, look at me type thing. It was an invitation on them. It was, I'm the son of God, and you can be too. My fundamental message is, I come, you can be adopted into this family. And this is a message that will go throughout the rest of the scripture. That salvation is not just that you're forgiven, but that you are adopted. So when you get to Romans 8, you hear Paul say this about Christians, about if you follow Jesus. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You didn't become a Christian to become a slave of God. But you have received the spirit of adoption in the sons. By whom we cry, Abba, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and children and heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. 
And so the canyon gets filled up, the mountain gets lowered, you go and you be with God, and he says to you, I want you to be my child. And maybe you're saying, like, well, sons, this is our, what about us? And it's very interesting for me, like, there are a number of metaphors throughout the Bible, some of which are female-centered, some of which are male-centered, uh, you know, right? So we're all the bride of Christ, right? So guys, you have to think about the fact that you're the bride of Jesus. That's, that's strange, but that's the, that's the metaphor. And the reason why it's, it's not sons and daughters explicitly here is because in this day, only sons could inherit from the Father. And Paul, the reason why Paul doesn't say sons and daughters is he wants everyone to understand male and female. You get the full inheritance, whether you're man or woman. So actually, what's actually a very liberating uh, and very uh, gender-inclusive reality sounds a little gender-exclusive. This is, well, we're all sons of God. No, no, the point is, we're all, we all get the full inheritance of the So now I'm going, to, I'm going to say son and daughter, but that's why Paul says you're, you're, you have the spirit of sonship. Because Jesus has come to invite you in, to be adopted in the family of God, and to receive the full inheritance that he gets, we get. And there is no way any of us are ready for that type of invitation to life of God. We are too damaged. Right? Even if you get to the place of, I repent, I'm, I'm sorry, I confess. It's like, okay, but I can still come in as a slave, right? God, like, can, can, I, can I still serve my way into the kingdom? I was like, no, like, I'm adopted. And the way I think about this is, is when, I was, when I was growing up, they would always take the elementary students uh, to the local county courthouse. I think they're like scary, like don't break the law, this is going to happen. I think that's the whole point. And they, because they picked the scariest judge, right? His name was Judge Bowles. And Judge Bowles, man, it's like whenever he showed any leniency, you're just like, whoa, like you didn't like sentence that child to life in prison. Like this is amazing. You're such a kind person. He's just a mean guy. And like the whole point was he was, he was bringing down the, the, the law. And my, my, like, I think the way I've often thought about God is sort of like that. It's like, you get up and God's really mean, and then he says, you know, I forgive you, and you're like, oh, thank you. Um, that's, real, that's really nice of you. And that's, then you leave, and that's salvation. It was not a very compelling uh, image. Instead, the salvation presented in the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament is Jesus is the Son of God, not driving around in his, his Lexus, flying out all the cash he has, but to come in and to, to us and to say to you and me, friends, my father is awesome. And he wants to be your father. Come in. And we are just not ready for that. And of course, like the question is, okay, if that's the invitation offered to us, how? And how do we leave this place with a sense of confidence? But that's actually how I can approach, approach God, not as someone who I have to convince to love me, but actually someone who's hard and far more willing to give me anything than I ever imagined. How in the world do you get to, to like, approach God like that? And, and here's how. Uh, standing at the, you know, the top of the Grand Canyon, um, my, my sense was I, I, I made a huge mistake. Right? Like, I went to bed like, you know, early, woke up at 3 a.m. to hike mostly in the heat of Arizona on August day. And I just remember thinking, like, how am I going to do but I'm like, I'm so far in, I've driven from Indiana to the Grand Canyon, it's like, I can't pull out now, I have two friends, and I don't want to embarrass myself. And we started hiking down the trail. What I found was, uh, here's a picture of us hiking that trail. What I found was someone had already made a trail, and it was actually, it was kind of easy. I mean, it's hard, like, it's a hard physical thing to do, but most, like, a lot of people have to do it, because there's been a trail of ours that, you know, you don't have to, like, rebel down the side of the cliff. There's a trail to go and to, to be, um, to take. And so that's why I love anyone who's never been there and doesn't know any of that. When I'm like, hey, I hiked the Grand Canyon 
and you're like, whoa, that's impressive. And of course, like the truth is, it's not, because I didn't. That's why it's, that's proof that it's not impressive that I didn't. <laughs> and yet I have this identity that like a hundred years ago would have made me like this incredible pioneering person. Like a hundred years ago, I'd be like, man, I have three opinions down the bottom of the top. I would be like, they would, there would have been books written about me. Now it's like, I'm, you know, I'm more likely to eat a bag of Doritos and fall asleep on the couch than I am to hike a candy. And yet I hiked a candy. Right? That is my identity because someone paid the trail, someone had made it easier, someone had, had, had laid out the way in, in front of me. And in so many ways, our identity as Christians is completely ridiculous. Child of God. Son of God. Daughter of God. And I, I, an identity that fits me about as well as Grand Canyon Hydra. And yet, uh, that is my identity. That is your life. And not because you know, you're going to repent good enough. Not because you're going you're to do enough well and prove it to God and earn your status at this table. The reason why you have a sense of confidence, if you come in for Jesus, you are a son, you are a daughter of God, is because what God said to Jesus at the baptism, you are my son with your mind will be. There's actually a quotation from the Old Testament. The first part that you are my son is Psalm 2, which is a, a statement of Jesus' kingship, his power. Psalm 2 is the, the coronation of the king, right? When they saw the king, so they like, when we have... When we put in a new president, we have a big event around that, and words are spoken over that president. Psalm 2 were those words for the king of Israel. You are my son, God says to his king. And the second half of that phrase, with whom I am well pleased, is from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 begins a string of passages of his servants. It's this shadowy figure that no one knows who he is. It's this figure who has power and yet suffers, who is a king and yet, uh, yet dies. These words are spoken about that, that servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And I would add, by his wounds we are adopted. But the Son of God, Jesus, comes to our world so that we could be the Son, the daughter of God. And it's an adoption, uh, like all adoptions, it's, it's a gift. We didn't ask for it. We can't earn it. At some point, the father and his son came along and just said to us, Hello, I love you. Come be a part of my family. I should admit, I am not ready for that. Let's pray. Father, I, I even address you as Father because Jesus said to his disciples, that's how we are to pray. No one prayed like that until Jesus came along and said, when you pray, pray our Father. And so we pray that now. We, we sing that now. We don't just sing to you as a holy God who's distant from us, who demands our repentance, but as a God who is our Father. In Jesus' name we pray this.